Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. If you're charged with a crime, it's extremely unlikely that you'll end up before a jury. 95% of criminal cases are resolved by magistrates and never get as far as the Crown Court. But who are magistrates? How do we choose them? And is it right, for example, that the people who can sentence you to up to a year in prison have no legal qualifications? Penelope Gibbs is Director of Transform Justice, which scrutinises our justice system, and she's joining me today to talk about the 12,000 volunteers who we trust with life-changing decisions. Welcome to The Bunker, Penelope. Thank you. So what kind of people become magistrates? You used to be one yourself, didn't you? I did, and, you know... I think uh, we would like to think that they're absolutely all sorts and there are some quite young ones in their 20s and people of every ethnicity and so on. But actually, we have a problem in that, you know, magistrates are supposed to be representatives of the people, just as people on juries are. Jury service is, is done on just a kind of lottery system. So it really is whoever, you know, gets chosen by the random allocation. But with magistrates, what has been the case for years is that they tend to be white, they tend to be very middle-class professionals. They have improved the, the diversity in terms of ethnicity, but not nearly as much as they need to. But I would say the real problem is the class basis, because if they're going to be representative of the people, we should have working class magistrates just as much as kind of upper middle class ones. And I'm, you know, you can hear from me, I'm middle class as they come and white. And I was a magistrate. So it's partly that if you could afford to volunteer, isn't it? I mean, it's a complicated issue. I, I think it goes way beyond that. It's partly whether you can afford to volunteer, but actually, you know, you get expenses for your travel. And if your employer won't, as it were, give you the time off as part of your salaried role, you can still get a kind of compensation in terms of expenses. I think it's about the opposition of employers, but I also just think it's a, it's a cultural issue. In the upper middle class, people are magistrates. It's what people do. And mainly retired, but I mean others as well. Whereas in other classes and communities, nobody knows anybody who's a magistrate. They have no idea that there are these people who are judges who are not legally qualified, who are basically volunteering to do it. And I really think that if the promotion and the sort of culture was slightly different and the recruitment process, you, you could easily get people who were not sort of moneyed. And as I mentioned, as you mentioned, you don't need any legal qualifications to be a magistrate. What training do you get? Minimal. I mean, it's one of the criticisms I have. So, so I look back, you know, with horror at the fact that I was a magistrate after so little training. You get two days kind of actual training. And, you know, when you look at other volunteers, a friend of mine has just become a Samaritan and you get weeks of training to do that and two days to be in judgment on your peers and, and being part of three people or two people sending people to prison. So it's absolutely ridiculous. And I mean, they say you've got to, in advance, you know, observe courts and then you always sit with other magistrates 
certainly initially. And so I think they would say, oh, you learn on the job, but actually not enough. The training is woeful. And I and others have been saying that for years, but nothing's really changed. So given that you haven't got that legal training, how do magistrates make up their minds on things like sentencing? Well, they have a sort of guidebook on sentencing, which sort of basically says you go through this process, if this, that, if that, that, etc., looking at whatever the crime was and then what are called mitigating and aggravating circumstances. So those are ones, say somebody's got severe mental health problems, that would be a mitigating circumstance. Aggravating would be if they were drunk. So there are sort of guidance. And then you have a legal advisor in the court who is legally qualified. So usually the, I mean, if you've ever seen a court uh, and sentencing, they they hear the prosecution and defence. And sometimes there's no defence because some people in the court don't have a lawyer. But anyway, they hear the arguments about the sentence and then they go off into what's called their retiring room. And at that point, they will consult with a legal advisor before they come back and actually give it. But my concern is, I'm not saying they get, in quotes, the wrong sentence, but without this kind of hinterland of knowledge of what might work and why people commit crime, which they don't have, I don't think that their sentencing well, just as you know, a lot of judges' sentencing is that good. There was a recent ruling by Do- while Dominic Raab was Lord Chancellor that magistrates could have greater powers in terms of sending people to prison, so they could send people to prison for longer. And we at Transform Justice and other campaigners were very unhappy about that because we just thought. You don't really understand, you know, how effective prison is or, in fact, isn't in terms of reducing crime. And we think that actually this is going to push up prison numbers. We haven't seen the numbers related to the change. But lo and behold, just a few months later, they reversed that change. So magistrates are now back to the same position they were in terms of their sentencing powers. And you think they reversed that change because basically it was leading to too many longer sentences? Yeah. I mean, they gave some reason, which sounded kind of quite odd, but the fact is we had a crisis in prisons. So they ran out of places, basically. And a month or two ago, they were using police custody cells for those who had Mm. been remanded or sentenced to prison, which they really shouldn't use. So there was a crisis in terms of places. And I think they did relate that to the magistrates' courts. But I absolutely want to say there are other judges in the magistrates' courts who make these decisions too. So you either have what's called the lay bench, the volunteer magistrates who sit as two or three, or you have what's called a district judge. Now, these are legally qualified, but they sit on their own on the same cases that magistrates sit on. And nearly all magistrates' courts also have that. So this issue about kind of did they lead to more higher prison sentences than, say, the Crown Court, it would be both district judges and magistrates doing that, not just magistrates. And I assume that there's no requirement to actually go and visit a prison before you become a magistrate. Absolutely not. And some people in in their lives would have seen a prison previously, but others definitely not. 
And then even when you do become a magistrate, you are encouraged to see a prison. But the kind of visit you make is meaningless, I have to say, because you're given a show of the best of prisons. So I remember as a magistrate going around Holloway, which is now closed, which was a women's prison. And in terms of the real life of the prison, I learned nothing. And I mean, there are, you know, there's very good coverage of what's going on in prisons, mainly by the prison inspectors. And I would say a compulsory bit of training based on what the inspectors say about prisons would be really worthwhile. What I think magistrates really need is a crash course in what we call criminology, what you study at university in about why people commit crime and how to prevent crime. Because prison is definitely not it, particularly short sentences in prison, which is all magistrates can do. There are two ways of looking at the fact that magistrates are lay people. And one is the late Lord Bingham's view. Lord Bingham is a highly revered and sadly deceased judge. That it's a democratic duel beyond price in the same way that uh, jury trials are often seen. Another is that the law and the job itself are just too complex and important to be entrusted to lay people. Now, we've talked about how they ought to receive more training, but do you think there's a case for making this an entirely professional occupation? I mean, this is a really difficult one because I kind of think you can't just look at magistrates in isolation. You need to also look at district judges. So I think as it stands magistrates are difficult to justify. They just don't have enough training in what they're doing. And that leads to them making decisions which I don't think are the best for justice. But I don't like the system of district judges either. I think that the problem with district judges is not them as individuals, but the fact that they sit entirely alone. So there is nobody to kind of challenge what they're saying. So they can sit in a court with no legal advisor who's legally qualified. And in their courts, or any courts really, you can have prosecutors who are also not legally qualified. They've had training, but they're not legally qualified. So you can have individuals sent to prison on remand. So they've pleaded innocence. They haven't been convicted. You can get them sentenced to prison on remand or sentenced to prison on sentence. One person making that decision and the defendant might not have had a lawyer at all. They could be totally unrepresented throughout their case. I'm really worried if you, as it were, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, if, if you get rid of magistrates. So there is... The Secret Barrister, if you've read their first book, they are very anti-magistrate. I have some sympathy with that. But what they never tackle is, if you get rid of those, do you have all these courts, all these huge number of cases dealt with by one person? And that there are appeals, you know, the kind of powers that be would say, oh, you can appeal whatever decision in the magistrate's court happens. But actually, there were immense barriers to appealing a sentence or a conviction. And if you actually sit in magistrate's courts, you think all the time, oh, you know, wow, that's a minor miscarriage of justice. So I would prefer to utterly reform the magistracy to make it 
truly more diverse. So it's not just the training, it is who they are. And other things, like they're totally gagged, they can never speak out. And so you get, unfortunately, it's not just class and ethnicity that is limited, but it's actually the character of the person. There used to be really feisty magistrates who spoke out about what was happening, but gradually their kind of independence has been ground down and there'd be more and more rules and restrictions about what they can do and say and and their kind of uh, responsibility. And so in a sense that that has just then led to very kind of conservative with a small c type of people actually, you know, applying to be magistrates. So I would reform who they are and their training and to a certain extent their sort of terms and conditions. I mean, I would be quite happy to give a small payment to people who would struggle to do it otherwise. But at the moment, the system is actually quite cheap, isn't it? I mean, you've got two or three magistrates on a bench, but they're all effectively free. Whereas if you have trained people, if you have district judges, you have to pay them more. And as you say, they sit alone. If you had two or three of them on a bench, the costs would stack up, which is presumably why the Ministry of Justice doesn't want to do it. I mean, I think it's it's just a huge issue. And they are, I mean, some people who are district judges would argue this, but they are definitely cheaper. They are slower in doing the cases than district judges. But overall, yes, I'd say they were still cheaper. But I mean, over time, we've seen a huge reduction in the number of magistrates. And I have wondered whether that's part of a cunning plan to kind of, you know, really diminish the, the magistracy compared to district judges, because the, the reduction is so enormous. They did have a big recruitment drive not long ago where they tried very openly to recruit more and more diverse, importantly, magistrates. Did that work? I don't know. We don't know because it's an incredibly uh, closed and untransparent system. So what we know is that I think, you know, the recruitment drive was ironic because I think this driving down the numbers and then at a certain point they kind of panicked and they thought we actually don't have the numbers here and we've got to do something major because they were thought of court backlogs and so on and also the other thing that I think they realized but has been very little publicized is that you know they could only manage the courts by having magistrates sit as two rather than three so everybody talks about this thing the bench the bench is supposed to be three magistrates. And that makes sense because say somebody is on trial and you need to discuss whether you think they are guilty or innocent. Well, if you've got three, you've always got a majority on one side or the other if there's disagreement. If you've got two magistrates, you could have one thinking one thing and one the other, and then you have to have a retrial. But it's also just not as balanced. So, I mean, I've seen, I've gone into courts and I've seen so many benches of two that they also, I think, realised. And they were magistrates I know said that they're kind of rung practically every day by desperate court staff saying, will you sit, will you sit? 
So they did this big recruitment drive and, you know, they used kind of quite innovative techniques compared to previously like TV ads. Well, I'm not talking about TV ads, but certainly radio. And they had a, a kind of website, which they hadn't have, had before. But what I learned from somebody who's on one of the uh, kind of panels which chooses magistrates is that the new recruitment process might have totally backfired. And I'm not sure when we're going to know it or not, because one of I think one of the aims was to get more diverse magistrates, so younger and, you know, across the classes and ethnically diverse. But according to this kind of whistleblower who spoke to me, the tasks that they've set up, the recruitment form and the actual interview is being changed really to suit professional people. So what it's being based on is what are called competencies. Now, you know, I know what a competency is because I'm a middle-class person who's been through lots of recruitment interviews based on competencies. But to lots of ordinary people, or maybe people who are not haven't been in work for 10 or 15 years or who are unemployed or economically inactive, whatever, these kind of competencies are incredibly alien. So... In the form, I, I kind of went through the the application form just to see what he might mean. And you have to give an example of how you demonstrate the attribute of understanding and appreciating different perspectives. And another one, you have to do the same for communicating with sensitivity and respect. You also have to get two referees, which is a very kind of professional approach. And those referees can't be family members. One of them can't be your employer. And you have to have known them for more than five years. I mean, tons of people in this country have never operated on the basis of referees. And this whistleblower said, I think we're turning down lots of good and possible people because they're not used to this kind of professional approach. And I very much doubt they have tested it according to whether it works as well for people who are doing, I don't know, working in Tesco on the tills as somebody who's like a trained surveyor or something like that. I can't believe that it works equally well for both. During COVID, the courts went remote and you wrote a report which couched in pretty damning terms the impact that it had on justice. Tell us a bit more about it and what it actually meant for defendants and for magistrates themselves. Well, there had always been use of what they call video links, even pre-COVID. So what there had been was if there was somebody in prison and it was difficult to get them to the court. They were linked by video, like, you know, a, a Zoom link or whatever, into the traditional court, into the real court. And then you could see them on a screen in the court. During COVID, you know, this just had to be ramped up so much because they didn't want lots of people going into the actual physical courts. I mean, they all, the criminal courts all still ran, but they also restricted the cases. But but what they did do is ramp up massively the use of these video links. So it wasn't just people in prison. 
but it was anybody who'd been arrested and then the police had kept them in police custody until their court appearance had to appear from the police custody suite into the court by video link. Tons of defendants who were, you know, doing trials or hearings or whatever worked on video link and people were doing it from like anything like mobile phones as well as laptops etc and one of the problems was a the technology because it relies on people having a good and stable internet connection enough credit on their mobile contract and the technology in the courtroom itself which was also often dodgy. So you have technological problems, but also it was just incredibly difficult for somebody who is a defendant in a case to understand what was going on via these pretty dodgy video links or to communicate with their lawyer if they had one, because the lawyer was also on a video link and might not have had a chance really to have a conversation with their client before the case came on. So to be honest, I mean, I I went to Highbury Magistrates Court, which is very near where we're recording now, during the pandemic. And when I was one of the few to get in, because they were trying to sort of dissuade members of the public from watching the courts. Mm. But I did get in and, it, you know, the justice was just appalling, really. And that was to do with these video links, partly the quality of them, partly video links per se don't help with communication. And you've got a mass court observation programme coming up at Transform Justice, haven't you? Tell us about that and how it's going to work. Well, we're still kind of shaping it at the moment. It's going to be called Court Watch London. And the idea came partly from the fact that what actually happens in magistrates' courts is pretty hidden most of the time. There are a fewer and fewer journalists who go into the courts. So there's some really good ones I would recommend in London, uh, Tristan Kirk of the Evening Standard, and there's some other good local ones all over the country, but few and far between. And they have a particular agenda, the journalists, as you might expect, of kind of, you know, newsworthy cases. So we don't have scrutiny, really, of what's going on in the courts. And every time I've gone in, I've thought, wow, we really need to learn about this. We need to learn about the fact that the magistrates are sitting as two, they look undiverse. We need to know what kind of sentences people get, under what basis, what kind of mental health problems do defendants have, and so on. And what we wanted to do was kind of get what's happening in the court out into the public domain via a sort of volunteer program. So Court Watch London is going to take three magistrates' courts in London, and we're going to um, recruit volunteers who, I mean, the court should be open, have an absolute access to those courts, to go into the courts and just relate what they see. I mean, we'll try and kind of collect the data for patterns, but one of the whole points of this idea is 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 a sort of democratic one to get more people really understanding how justice is done in this country that sounds fascinating and i would recommend if you have time 
to spend some time in a magistrate's court because it will transform the way that you think about justice and the way that you think about crime and the way you think that the, about the whole way in which we deal with problems and, and people who, who commit crimes in society. Penelope, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And if you enjoyed this episode of The Bunker, do consider backing us on Patreon. Just Google Patreon Bunker Podcast and you will find the details of how to do that. I'm Ros Taylor and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 